Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bootkaloo. This week, my old friend Jan Doolittle Wilson joins me to cover an Arya chapter. I need to apologize for the audio feed. I have two very legitimate excuses. Uh, this week is finals week, so I was doing a lot of final grading, oral exams, and whatnot. In addition to that, jury duty. Jury duty. I've never had it before. So you're basically getting the raw feed from Jan and my conversation. The quality is not necessarily to my liking, and I do apologize for that. In addition to that, because of my jury duty, this fantasy fantasy league I've been talking about on this podcast had to be postponed. And uh, so life happened. Life happened this week. But I hope you enjoy this conversation with uh, Jan. Nonetheless, I always enjoy talking with her. All right, without further ado, here is Dr. Jan Doolittle Wilson. So I've been thinking a lot about Oklahoma. Yes. <laughs> In <laughs> uh, what way, I should ask. Well, for a, a lot of reasons, I've been thinking... This is sort of a lame thing to do to you because you're the only person I know in Oklahoma. (laughs) (laughs) But it's been on my mind a lot. And I'll tell you, for two reasons, my wife just started Killers of the Flower Moon. I don't know if you're familiar. Yes. Everybody was very excited when they did filming here. Yeah. So, um, in you know, sort of before the film comes out. And then she just started. And so then... Like she's almost finished, and I'm just beginning. My husband has read it. I have not. I should okay. Tell you. Um, All so right. I can't really comment on the book. I just can tell you that again. People here were very excited that uh-huh. you know Leo was here and Scorsese, and they right. did a lot of filming in some of the historic sections of downtown Tulsa, and you know, kind of in the larger um, you know area throughout you know this section of our state. Sure. Um, so it's a very big deal here, and in fact, my daughter is, and it's an aspiring actress singer performer and she had plans to maybe go down and and be an extra on the film but Ah. they had a lot of covid protocols still in place right and so they were being pretty selective about who they were letting on set and so it didn't work out but um yeah we're excited to to see it so that was sort of the one of the things and then the other thing is one of my absolute favorite shows of the last couple years is Reservoir Dogs. Yes. <laughs> I just love that show. I watched I watched it all and then I I I rewatched it with my son and I just am in absolute love with the characters in that show and I it's really kind of become one of my favorite shows of all time. You know, again, my husband watches it. Um, yeah. He is a, uh, you know, does history of the West, indigenous history. Uh-huh. Um, so he has watched all of it. I started the first season, really uh-huh. liked it, got busy, distracted with other things. So it's uh-huh. on my list to finish this summer. But the creator of the show, whose name is escaping me at this moment. I think Starlin Harjo is. I don't know if yes. I'm saying that correctly, but. Harjo is definitely the last name. The, yeah, the first uh, name I think is close to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but my husband met him. Oh, excellent. Nathan just very politely went up to him and said, I'm a huge fan. Uh, I love the show. And they had a really nice conversation. So uh, he said he was just a really, really nice guy. 
That's always that's always good. And yes. it doesn't always work out that way. It doesn't always work out. <laughs> <laughs> but he was very pleasant and very appreciative of the compliments and uh, you know, said he was excited. I think they were launching the second season at that point. So Sure, uh, sure. Just a really nice guy. Um, so Oklahoma, you know, we have some yeah, things. yeah, no, notorious. <laughs> we have some good things. <laughs> Absolutely. So, anyway, it's just like it's it's like the confluence of these things ha- has Oklahoma on my mind. Sure. Uh, and of course, um, okay. I let me do a quick sound. Uh, you're getting a little bit of sibilith on your end. Okay. Uh, do I need to adjust? Maybe the mic. <sighs> You're probably wearing the headset. Yes. Maybe move it down closer to your chin if that's okay. possible. I think that it, that sometimes that helps and you don't have to mess with any of the audio settings. Is that a little bit better? Yeah. Yeah, that works. Okay. Yeah, it was probably just up too high. Yeah. No, no. That, that's perfect. I appreciate okay. that. Um, Great. So um, I maybe maybe I could just jump right into... Uh, Maybe I could just jump right into my synopsis. Okay, that sounds good. Okay, so we're looking at Arya 5 here. Arya's companions have been reduced to a remnant, including Gendry, Hot Pie, Lamy, and Weasel. The group is starving near the war-ravaged God's Eye. Lamy wants to yield. Hot Pie refuses (laughs) to eat worms. (laughs) Gendry is trying to keep the children hidden, and Weasel continues to latch on to Arya. Arya recalls their narrow escape from the tower and being abandoned by Yorin's surviving recruits. After a debate on whether to approach a village, Gendry and Arya decide to get closer. Gendry is captured. Arya is determined to save him, but is betrayed by Hot Pie, who yields. (laughs) After being concussed, she is only partially aware of what happens next. She, however, is alert enough to see Lamy murdered. By one of Gregor Clegane's men. So, Jan, what shall we talk about today? There's, it's a rich chapter. There's a lot to discuss. When you were saying yield, you know, of course, I was kind of chuckling, although that ends very badly. Uh, well, there's me. a lot of, there's a lot of talk about yielding in this chapter. There is a lot. I mean, we could start there. Uh, I do have, you know, some other things I want yeah. to discuss, but. Well, it you know kind of relates actually to where I wanted to start, which is I was thinking so much about class and yeah, the intersections of class and gender in this world, and how with a shift in politics, with a shift in leadership, with a shift in geography, the circumstance, uh-huh. one's position shifts so dramatically, and so you know I think so much of of Arya whose chapters, interestingly, really parallel Sansa's in some really interesting ways. Yeah. Um, they're, they're both trying to navigate and negotiate this new relationship they both have um, to gender and class and, and the power dynamics and now the lack of their father's protection. All of that's been stripped away and they're placed in such different circumstances. They're both so vulnerable, but they're also trying to figure out the new rules. And what mm-hmm. does one have to do to survive? Everything I know is wrong. And so it's both of them relearning everything they need to know. All of the lessons from their father, a lot of those don't apply anymore. A lot of the lessons that they had absorbed from 
septa, you know, mm -hmm, from their mother, mm -hmm. all of that's gone. And what really strikes me in rereading this chapter, those who adhere to the old rules tend to be the ones who die. Those who can't adjust, those who still believe in honor and chivalry mm. and the code, you know, you see this with Yorin, um, who, who still have faith in that, they tend to be the first to go. And mm. it's those who say, actually, the old codes don't apply, or we have to take those codes and manipulate them in this new world. And so when you said yield, I started thinking about how in the old world, maybe that would have worked. <laughs> you yield. Mm -hmm. Your enemy doesn't kill you if you yield. Yeah, or the idealized old world. The right? idealized, but it's also, again, yeah. tied to class, right? Because sure. mommy and hot pie, who have never been privileged, have this very romanticized view, I think, of what knights do and what soldiers do. I know this isn't in the book, but I did rewatch the um, couple of the episodes that uh, correspond mm -hmm. to the chapter. And something Hot Pie says in the show, which he, again, doesn't say in the book, but it really, I think, is relevant to this. Hot Pie, they're, they're by the creek and they're getting water. And Hot Pie is talking about soldiers and armor. And, you know, he met a knight once. Yeah. Do you remember this? And yeah. Arya says, how do you know he was a knight? Well, he wore armor right. and yeah. he had a sword. Uh -huh. And so they have this very kind of picture book idea, you know, of what a soldier is supposed to be. And in the picture books and in the stories they've heard in the legends, you yield and the person who is fighting you automatically allows you to surrender and treats you like a gentleman. And so they do think yielding will save them. You know, Lamy keeps saying, all we have to do is yield. Hot pie, all we have to do is yield. Um, and poor Lamy, we know, you know, how that turns out. He really thinks mm -hmm. that these, they're wearing armor. They must be honorable. They are soldiers. They approach him and he says, I yield. You have to carry me now. Yeah. And of course, they kill him and laugh while they do it. Yeah, it's an interesting bit of courtesy, right? It's like a rule of warfare, right? Mm, it's like, yeah. okay, here we, you know, this is the way you fight honorably. And then, of course, when the fighting's done, we all sort of returned to our civilized, you know, selves or something. But, of course, in this world, you know, there are no rules of, of warfare, no. right? They're, they're, the rules of warfare are the most powerful person probably will exploit or murder the weaker party. Um, and so it's interesting that you say that. It's interesting. Yes. When, when you started, you said something like the people that sort of adhere to the old rules end up going first, right? So Yorn would absolutely, you know, be one right. of these, right? Because he was trying to do the honorable thing. He was trying to get Arya back up north. He was not, you know, he he was, he felt like his cause was righteous. Yes. And he's also a member of the Night's Watch, which, I mean, talk about codes and living by rules. Yeah, yeah. And this is how you make sense of your uh -huh. world. You know, you have these codes and you expect other people will abide by them. And that's a very Ned Stark thing, too. You know, Yorin meets Ned. This is when Arya first encounters Yorin. She meets him in her father's study. And he's a man of the Night's Watch. And I was also just struck by, you know, every place they go, they're, they're going through these villages. And Yorin keeps telling Arya, we're protected. We are neutral. 
we're not going to be attacked. Right. We are the Night's Watch, and everybody knows that we are not political. Do you remember the, the scene where they uh, – or the chapter they, they go into the cornfield, and he says everybody knows that the Night's Watch is allowed to forage in the fields. This is how we survive and they, travel, they, and he has stopped. They, <laughs> they have to end up paying for these wormy apples that they've taken. Yes, and he is so offended by that. He's, he's maybe more offended by that than right, anything else they right, encounter right. because this is not what one does. Right. And, you know, I just, again – that connection to Ned, you know, Ned's world was full of these rules and these laws and these codes. And when Jeffrey took his head, all bets mm -hmm. were off. All bets were off because Ned had sworn his pledge. He had signed the oath. He committed himself to being taken by the Knights. In fact, Jorn was there to take Ned. And Joffrey had him beheaded, hmm. <laughs> which was a huge violation of what was supposed to happen. So, you know, I think it was very much in that moment that everything that used to kind of inform and organize this world is now just shattered. So it's interesting that, I mean, there's a lot in this chapter to talk about, but I was just thinking the chapter that this follows is this interaction with Sansa and Sir Dantos. Yes. And he's almost using sort of these high fantasy courtesies to ally with her. You know, she feels yes. alienated. She's totally isolated. She's in a dark place. She's praying for a knight in shining armor. And Sardanto shows up and he doesn't look like what she imagined, but he does remind her a little bit of Florian, right? So... Yes. And of course, he has all the right words to say. And, you know, sort of my head canon is the, he's been coached by Littlefinger, right? <laughs> yes. So, but he seemingly is playing by the rules of court. And the rules of court are very important to Sansa, right? So, yes. It almost reminds, you know, your little, I guess your little rule for the road <laughs> sort of works out because <laughs> we know what happens to Dantos, right? <laughs> right. You know, whether or not he, he thought he was actually doing the right thing by Sansa or whether he thought he was, you know, saving his own skin or maybe he's getting paid or what. I don't, I don't know. But he sort of is the epitome of that. You know, he looks like, you know, someone who's going to try to be a good knight, you know. And of <laughs> right. course, he's going to die right. pretty, pretty quickly. And he's also one of these kind of unlikely heroes, yes. too, where, you know, both, again, the parallels are so interesting because both Arya and Sansa, they each have their own agency. You know, I, I am a big defender of Sansa. I think Arya gets all the credit, but I think Sansa is very strong in her own right mm -hmm. and, and learns to become even more so as we go through the books. But they have to find allies wherever they can. And those allies don't look anything like perhaps they thought they would, mm -hmm. especially in Sansa's case. You know, a knight is not really, a, you know, supposed to be that. Right. Uh, a knight is chivalrous. A knight is treated, you know, treats others with honor, follows the code, um, is always noble. Um, and, you know, she has to find, and, and even, you know, finding some kind of allyship with, with Baelish and, you know, people that she knows she can't fully trust, mm -hmm. but has to use them somehow for her own survival. And I think it's an interesting parallel with Arya and uh, Jockin, 
which mm-hmm. is also mm-hmm. a fascinating relationship. Yes. You know, here you have a man who speaks honorably. I love the way he speaks, right? A man is thirsty. <laughs> um, and how she is able to uh, learn from him and and find him extremely useful, who also doesn't really quite fit the old order in any way. You know, well, he's it's not an example. Okay. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 finish what you're saying. I, it, it sort of bring, leads me into another topic that I wanted to t- discuss. Let's finish up this one, though, first. Yeah, and he's a fascinating character. When she first meets him, he's in a cage. Yeah. You know, he is in a cage. Uh, he has been taken out of, you know, the black cells, and he's on his way to the Night's Watch, and he's locked up with two other really vicious men. Yeah, they, they and, don't have courtesy, but he does. I mean, right? none, right? <laughs> and so... When he first speaks to Arya, you know, she's first, I think, taken aback because his tone is so different from the other two. And he even says to her, a man does not choose his company. He apologizes for the other two. And so he knows exactly what to say because he's so observant. He's been watching Arya. And so here is this man who is presumably a criminal who has to be locked up because he is so dangerous, according to Yorin. And yet he becomes one of her greatest allies. Um, and in many ways, her protector in these first few chapters. And of course, goes on to have a bigger role later. Mm-hmm. We're getting geared up for the sixth annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, <laughs> now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved the venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. So it's interesting that you bring up Jock and Hagar because you could say that Arya does the honorable thing with him. Yes. He, yes. She brings he, she does bring him water or or beer or whatever. Um she does bring him an axe to free himself. Uh, even though she she doesn't totally trust him. Right. And 
eventually that event, I guess you could say eventually she's rewarded for doing the honorable yes. thing. Right. Yes. So I think that there is something about, you know, you are in the middle of a war, which means that sort of chaos reigns and the rules don't apply, but you're in the midst of that. You kind of have to stay human however you can. Right. So yes, you have to sort of pick your moments and Arya does pick a moment or two. She picks one in this chapter. She wants to save Gendry, right? Yes. Um, and sometimes she's rewarded for doing, quote unquote, the right thing. And sometimes she's not. Um, right. I think, and I mean, you could say this sort of generally about these books is that sometimes doing the right thing will end up reaping dividends down the line. Right. And sometimes doing the right thing will get you killed. <laughs> I think it's such a good point because I, I think maybe what you know Martin is trying to suggest is those who are inflexible in terms of, no, this is the code. This is how we live. Yeah, this yeah. is the honorable thing to do. They're going to die. But by the same token, also those who are completely merciless and exploit and take complete advantage of we're living in this new chaotic order I am going to be ruthless uh, in the midst of this. Yeah. They also are not rewarded ultimately. They're punished in the end. And so I think it is those who, like Arya, like Sansa, um, who are very smart, right? Who mm -hmm. know when the old rules simply don't apply and might get you killed, mm -hmm. but also are retaining that that core aspect of their humanity. So when she saves, you know, Jockin, when she, you know, defends Micah, the butcher boy, you know, when she even, you know, in later chapters, her enemies list, you know, when she yeah. decides who will die, there's always some purpose to that. It's, you know, either to avenge a wrong or it's self-defense or, you know, she doesn't just kind of randomly kill. Um, it's always for some larger purpose. And so I think you're right. The saving of Jockin really... She's there is no quid pro quo in her mind in that moment. Mm -hmm. it, it is not. A, she. I don't think she's consciously thinking at all. If I save this person, maybe he can help me. No, she sees that he will die. Uh, these men are going to burn to death, mm -hmm. and at great risk to herself, she runs back into the burning building, um, choking on the smoke as she goes, and she hands them the axe. She didn't have to do that. Um, there was really nothing in that for her. But it was that, you're right, it's that core piece of this is the right thing to do. And that's, I think, what sets her apart. Even that conversation she has with Gendry, where, you know, poor Lamy has been wounded, they're yeah. carrying him, Hot Pie is dragging them down, poor Hot Pie can't really fight. Um, Weasel is pretty useless, she's a little girl. Yeah. And even Gendry is saying to Arya, let's just leave. They they serve us no purpose, they will, they'll get us killed. And Arya is the one who is saying, no, we cannot do that. And Arya is so much younger than Gendry. Yeah. I feel like in order to be fair to Gendry, he does kind <laughs> of like. I like Gendry. Let me just say I like Gendry. I think he says, you know, we. it'd be better if, if Lamy just died because he's slowing us down. He, he does. But I think he doesn't. He also suggest they should leave. Yeah. Right. Right. I, I, I think he does say that. Okay, so maybe I I retract this. He does say, <laughs> I do think that he's trying the idea on Versailles. I, I think, right. I don't know if he will actually do it. I mean, he's the one that's been carrying Lamy the, most of the time, right? Right. 
I don't know if he'll actually do it. I think that he's sort of just staying, stay, stating a fact. And the, the fact that he's stating is we would have a better chance to survive if we did what, uh, who were the cut Jack and Tarber? Yeah. They just leave. They just leave. And he he's thinking, you know, that was kind of cruel what they did, but it was kind of the smart play because, you know, it's really hard to survive if if you're trying to shepherd around a bunch of orphan boys, right? Right. And I think I think okay, so maybe I'm maybe I'm being a little over overly <laughs> Pollyannish on this. I wonder if Gendry is sort of saying, I don't know what the right thing to do is here. I'm gonna say something out loud, which I think is factually true. And I'm just gonna let it kind of hang there to see what happens with this. And he's young, you know. I mean, he's young. They're all starving. Oh yeah, they are exhausted. Gendry's like fourteen years old, right? So yes, we we forget how young he is. I mean, Arya's what, not even ten yet, or had just turned ten, and yeah, they're little kids. And Lamy is not the easiest companion. Um, <laughs> and Weasel, poor thing, is right? crying constantly. Yeah. I mean, their nerves are shot at this point. Yeah, so yeah. you know, I think it is. I can understand Gendry. They get a moment alone, and he says, "Let's just go. Okay. Let's just keep going." <laughs> All right. Um, and then also, it pains me to say this because I love Arya, but she does say, at one point, her guise is up. Right? He he calls it out. You're a girl, yes. right? And she knows that she can't say anything otherwise. All of the pretense is gone. And she, in her mind, she says, well, I either need to tell him the truth or kill him. Or kill him. (laughs) And then she doesn't like stay, you know, she doesn't like correct herself. She doesn't self-correct by saying something like, "Mm, I don't know if that'd be the right thing to do. She self-corrects by saying, he is stronger than me. Maybe I wouldn't be able to kill him. So it, there's there's this part of her that feels like to survive, I either need to trust him or kill him. Yeah. There's that self-preservation piece, yes. which I'm sure factors into Gendry's thinking we should just, you know, leave them behind. But I think with Arya, it's it's kind of more immediate, right? She she does kill a couple mm-hmm. of people when she is faced with imminent threat. Yeah. And in that moment where Gendry kind of unmasks her and is known all along, that first thought is, okay, I have to defend myself against this person who's maybe a threat. Mm-hmm. But it also goes back to where we started, Anthony, because I, I just was chuckling as I read through this again, because it shows again how, you know, even Gendry, who is not highborn, he also adheres to the code. Because I was ask when you about she that. says, I'm Arya Stark, mm-hmm. or I'm Arya of House Stark, mm-hmm. his entire demeanor changes and he starts calling her my lady. Yeah, you <laughs> said. Says, I'm pissed in front of you. This is terrible. As if that matters in this world that she's, you know, of House Stark. That right. doesn't matter at all. In fact, it's now a liability. It's Absolutely. not something that will protect her. Yeah, you mentioned when we started, there's an interesting intersection between gender and class, right? Yes, and that's so kind you, of what I was thinking. You kind of see that. I mean, there's a little. Hmm, I'm trying to find a parallel with Sansa here, but for for Arya's story, Gendry knows that she's useful, and and comparatively, right, compared to the other wet rats that he has traveling with him, <laughs> she 
she, you know, she she's resourceful. She's creative. She can be sneaky. She can climb a tree and, you know, uh, you know, spy and make and she can make decisions, right? And she's yes. brave. And so he knows that there's more to her than meets the eye. He can, you know, he's not, he's not all to, she calls him stupid several times. He's not altogether <laughs> stupid. Uh, he notices that she's a girl and he says, you're the only one that's actually has any use to me, even though you're a girl. Right. Yeah. So there's still kind of a hierarchy there because he's older you know, that puts him above her. He's he's a male that puts him above her. And then the tables completely turn right when she reveals that she's Arya of House right, Stark. Right. Suddenly that means something different. Now he feels like, oh, I've been saying the wrong things. And I'm talking about my cock and <laughs> yeah, you, I should call you my point. lady. <laughs> it's such a good point, Anthony. Yes. Right. So before you're right, gender in this world, as long as she can fight. And wow, she proved herself with that sword, you know, in the, in the previous mm-hmm. chapter. Um, she He knows she can fight. She can. Um, she's quiet. She can climb the tree. She mm-hmm. can spy on people. She's very good at that. And so he doesn't care that she's a girl, mm-hmm. but suddenly she's a girl and a Stark. Yeah. And that's what causes the shift. Yeah. And yeah. so again, even she's the same person she was two minutes ago, but suddenly with that Stark name attached, yeah, yeah. he treats her differently. And it's, it's, it's an interesting, I keep using the word parallel, but if you think back to, do you remember that scene in Game of Thrones? I keep saying scene, chapter in Game of Thrones, where Arya gets locked out of the castle and she has to try to get back through the gate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they call her little urchin boy or, you know, this little poor <laughs> kid, get a, get away. Mm-hmm. And she says so forcefully, I am not a boy. I am a girl and I am the daughter of the hand of the king. Mm-hmm. And so she knows when to invoke her class privilege she knows when to invoke her gender mm-hmm. how dare you call me and she gets offended when Yorin calls her a boy the first time so she's very forceful about i'm a girl and i'm a stark mm. the two very things that in a clash of kings will get her killed or will get her captured mm-hmm. uh, and and leave her vulnerable so those things that protected her before the things that she claimed before she has to hide it's it's so interesting and again if you think about what sansa has to do Son still has her name, and she does have her privileges of class and gender. There are several times Joffrey says, I can't treat you badly because you're a girl. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're going to be my wife, uh, even though he has his knights do it on his behalf. But there is that insulation, you know, that she has. Uh, the very things that, again, do not insulate Arya in that very different setting. Although, of course, they're both very vulnerable. Uh, they're both highly at risk and i wanted to ask you who do you think is more at risk mm. who is more vulnerable or are they just vulnerable in different ways yeah i mean i think i was gonna if you were to ask me two chapters ago i would say that at least Arya has yorin yeah and you know yorin is a he's an adult and he has a purpose and at least he'll find you know he he's done this trip several times right so he's not in uncharted waters and he cares about getting her back to winterfell and here sansa is she's totally isolated like 
and doesn't know who to trust. She's There's being nobody. abused. She's being yes. physically beaten. And I think that now Arya is in the worst shape. Yeah. And now even that Yorin's gone. I think that Sansa now has a new ally, and that's the Hound. Yeah. Even though she doesn't realize it yet. She thinks that Dantos is her ally. It's it's really the Hound, yeah. Um, because the Hound is the only one that will not obey Joffrey if Joffrey, you know, says commands something. Right. I mean, you could probably say the same thing about Tyrion, yeah. Uh, but but I don't think Sansa's even on Tyrion's radar very much. Um, I another unlikely hero, the Hound. Yes. Right? That's another right. Another one of those things you she never would have imagined when she first met the Hound that this would be a person who would be a, a protector of sorts, someone that she could trust. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we have the Aryan hound relationship later, yeah, um, yeah. which is also interesting. Why do you think Weasel latches on to Arya in the way that she does? She doesn't latch, latch on to, like, it's not like Arya is like... <laughs> much kinder to her. <laughs> much, much kinder <laughs> than the others, but she's really kind of, she almost has separation anxiety with with Arya she's sort of right. chosen Arya as her you know big sister slash mother slash whatever right it, I don't know it could be that Arya's the smallest <laughs> she's maybe the least threatening uh-huh. um she probably has seen the moments of you know compassion that Arya has shown to other people um maybe she she kind of senses that Arya is a girl that maybe has more in common with her um it, it's hard to tell, you know, Weasel's a character who doesn't speak, just cries. She's, yeah. She's very sad. It's very sad, her story. I'd like to, do we ever encounter her again? I can't remember. In fact, we don't. And I was going to ask okay. you about that because, you know, Martin's stories are known for, or at least they have the reputation for being hyper-realistic. Right. And I think that that might be true if you're comparing it with like high fantasy or something, but Martin does have rules for storytelling. And one of the rules that he likes to adhere to is that a character will often receive just desserts. Yeah. Like, you know, Jamie pushes Bran out the window with a hand. He loses a hand. Yeah. You know, Theon is horrible, horrible to the women around him. He's almost a a sexual predator, right? Right. In this book, you, you really see that. And then, of course, we know what Theon loses. Right. And, you know, like the the slavers that Danny encounters, they end up getting burnt. And you can just kind of go down a list of like the kinds of people who commit a particular kind of sin. There's almost like a counterbalance. It's almost a Catholic you know, sort of counterbalance for like sin and penance or something. Right. And I wonder if because Arya has shown kindness to Weasel, whether maybe we haven't seen the last of Weasel. Like like if just desserts are sometimes a mainstay of his storytelling, is it possible that as the story progresses, Arya will be in a situation where she needs someone to show her kindness and Weasel is there to do it. I like that. I, I would I would love if we if she made a reappearance uh in, you know, the last couple of books. And of course, you know, 
Arya takes on her name too. Yeah, yeah. Which might show that there is some sort of, you know, reconnection that might happen later. Does it, I don't, this is really off the top of my head. I haven't thought this through, but does it sort of remind you of the relationship Arya has with Nymeria? Yes. Right. In order I was to save Nymeria, that. she pushes Nymeria away mm-hmm. and kind of is what happens with Weasel. Run as fast as you can, even though, you know, I'm going to be sad maybe without you. I want to protect you. So mm-hmm. go. Mm-hmm. No, I, I do. I got the same sense. I got the same. Like eventually I feel like that that connection with Nymeria has to pay off in some way. Right. And I and I wonder if there's something similar that's going to be happen that's going to happen with with Weasel as well. Uh, it almost seems inevitable now that you're making all of those connections. It, it just makes a lot of sense, and it seems consistent, you know, with with what Martin does. Now I probably should add a bit of a caveat here. I do think that there are characters like Yorin or like Ned or whatever, and they try to do the right thing. And they end up dying because of it. And that sort of brings us back to an earlier conversation. Right. Um, Which is also kind of a Martin rule, right? Sure. You can't just abide by the old. You have to adapt or you die. Yeah, yeah. I think that there's something about the way that Martin likes to tell these stories is that, and I've heard him say this, um, which is, I think, both a virtue and a, a vice. But he says, if I introduce a character and they're part of the story, I would like to see that character have a good beginning, a significant middle, <laughs> and a fitting end. Like he he cares about the story arcs of these characters. Yeah. And so, you know, here's Yorin. You know, we see him over the course of, uh, you know, the the last part of the first book and the first part of the second book, and he's kind of run his course. Um. And it's possible that Yorin, it was, you know, he was sort of a prop for Arya. Yeah. And and that's fine. That's sort of, that was his story arc and he runs its course, but he does have a legitimate beginning, middle, and end of his story. Uh, and I think that you could, on top of that, what you could say is, because he does care about these characters in that way, a device he'll often use is that there's the sort of a just desserts aspect of characters that he likes to use. Maybe he doesn't always use it, but that is sort of a device that he likes to use. I think that's true. You made me, you made me think of the other side of that. Maybe this is where you're going. You know, we've kind of established that in most instances, characters like Yorin or Ned, those who follow the rules and and live by a code usually will die. Mm -hmm. Is it also true that those who violate the code in the most egregious ways will end up being punished? <laughs> and I'm thinking Joffrey, but I'm also thinking of Walter Frey, mm-hmm. who you and I have talked about. Mm-hmm. He violated one of the most sacred codes you can violate. Mm-hmm. And we know what ends up happening <laughs> to Walter Frey. So um, I'm, I'm trying to think of other examples, but it also seems like Martin likes to carry that to follow that through, yeah. yes, while honorable men may be punished for not adapting to a new order, he will also punish those who violate that order. Well, I was thinking about Jon Snow because, you know, he takes us oath and sort of the, the core collective identity of the Night's Watch is to defend against the darkness. But 
the way that that's interpreted and the way it has been interpreted for thousands of years is we do not let the wildlings pass us. Yes. They, the, the wildlings do not get past the wall. Now, that That's sort of core to that collective identity. And of course, he takes the vow and that's what he thinks he's vowing. And then he ends up reinterpreting the vow and, and violating that code. Right. And be, you know, he ends up getting punished. Uh, right. Which is also a violation of the code, right? You don't kill your brothers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's, it's interesting. I, I feel like I should probably say that whenever we sort of discover a rule about Martin's story, then there's always the possibility that it's going to get subverted, you know? Yeah, right. And and who subverts it and why? Uh-huh. I think that's interesting too. And you mentioned John. Could we also say <laughs> we need to write all of this down, Anthony? Uh, could we also say that those who subvert the rules are usually it, it's valid when they do so because they are doing it for non selfish reasons. Hmm. And so it's not like John is building an army to empower himself and take over King's Landing, mm. right? He's mm. doing it, What he thinks he's doing it for protection. Mm. And so maybe that's the difference. Whereas we know that somebody like Joffrey and, and Frey are just all out for themselves. That's why they're violating the code. Here's the thing that struck me as I re- reading this. I was reading, I was just thinking, this is what war looks like. It's, it is not glory it's not painting yourself with honor you know it's this is yeah. not this is not a song this is what war really looks like this is being desperate and eating worms and hiding yeah. you know hiding from you know these knights that you think that will protect you and and being disappointed by these so-called men of honor i mean that is martin Mar- this is the story that martin's telling in this book yeah yeah that that you, you know, you, you hear about these great battles and, but what would it be like to be a nine-year-old girl in trying to, you know, forage for food in the aftermath of the battle? I think you're right. And he's also doing this through the eyes of the child. You know, mm. Arya has, I think, don't quote me on this, but I think other than Tyrion has the most point of view chapters in the book. Uh, or at least an equal number. And so we see so much of this story through Arya. And that that is even more impactful. Because here you have this 9, 10-year-old little girl mm. who is watching people being slaughtered. Right? She is mm-hmm. passing under corpses that have their entrails are hanging out. Their, yeah. their limbs have been hacked off. She witnesses the torture you know, from the tickler. Which I think you're right. With, with from Martin's point of view, it just shows this kind of banality of evil idea. Yes. Because Arya says at one point, this guy was just in the canteen. <laughs> I don't think she calls it a canteen, but mm-hmm. he just looks like a normal guy. I thought evil looked evil. Yeah. And here's this just this guy who's having conversations with people, having a snack, and then an hour later, he's torturing people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he he, you know, I, I do think absolutely that's that's what he's trying to show is war is horrific. And seeing it through the eyes of a child who has already experienced so much trauma makes it even worse. So the other thing I wanted to kind of call out here, and 
it sort of reminds us that we're we're sort of in a fantasy novel, right? Is this paragraph? I'll just read this paragraph. Um, Arya's arms and legs were stiff when she finally wriggled out from under the briar into the dark of the wood. It was a black night with a thin silver moon appearing and disappearing as the clouds blew past, silent as a shadow, she told herself as she moved through the trees. In this darkness, she dared not run for fear of tripping on some unseen root or losing her way. On her left, the god's eye lapped calmly against its shores. On her right, a wind sighed through the branches, and leaves rustled and stirred. Far off, she heard a howling of wolves. Mm. So those last couple lines are you interesting. You such a nice reading voice, Anthony, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> it's very soothing. <laughs> um, Martin has this little trick that he does with wind and trees. I think for him, that's sort of code for something spiritual is happening or something right. supernatural is happening. Um She's near the God's Eye, which is sort of one of the most sacred places for the religion of the North, right? Right. Even though she's in the in the, in the South, it's supposed to be a, a a sacred place. And then, of course, there's wolves howling. So it's like on her left, there's the God's Eye, sacred. The wind's blowing through the trees to the right, sacred. And then she hears wolves howling in the distance, sacred. And I feel like after sort of being a close reader of Martin's text, that is sort of his way of reminding us that there's more at work here than meets the eye. Right. And, but he'll do that in ways where it's not immediately obvious that something supernatural is happening. And in all of those ways, you could say, yeah, well, just on the face of it, you know, waves lap and wind blows and wolves howl what's the big deal but when you put all of those things together it really is martin's way of talking about spirituality oh yeah and so you have this little you know this 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 little reminder about aria's supernatural ability when she comes back to lamy and uh and weasel they start and they say, yes. we thought, we thought you were a wolf. <laughs> yes. Right. And then she is, she is a wolf. Right. So she has the blood of the wolf, right. That again, that blood connection and that family heritage and so much we could unpack there, mm. but I'm, I'm reminded of a couple of things, just how often she has Serio in her head yeah. in these chapters. Yes. And she repeats those lines again and again and again. And, you know, quiet as the wind or, you know, quiet as the wolf or um, use your eyes, use your ears, use all of your senses. And that saves her many, many times. Mm -hmm. But it's also, I think you're right, this fantasy element where she clearly is channeling something and, and connecting to something, even if she doesn't quite realize it. Because the Starks, they have these abilities. And so, you know, she starts seeing through Nymeria's mm -hmm, point of view. Mm -hmm. um, she is connecting to Nymeria, even though Nymeria is not in close proximity. And I, you know, I know this isn't a later chapter, so you may not want to talk about this. But her conversation with Ned, I think, is interesting, too. Is she just kind of dreaming of Ned when he kind of, you know, comes to her and says, 
you have to survive. You're a Stark. You've got, you know, the blood of the wolf. Mm. Uh, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives, mm -hmm. which is such a running theme um, in terms of how she conducts herself. And, you know, this idea that it is kind of the, the lone people who, who stake out their own claim who often don't survive, but it's those who band together, particularly if they're considered weaker. You know, together we are strong. Um, but she has this conversation with Ned. And is she actually talking to Ned? Mm. Is she envisioning Ned? You know, we know that um, Rickon, for example, sees Ned on the night Ned dies. So I'm wondering if you think she's actually able to communicate with Ned as like a spirit, or is she just imagining what he would say to her? Yeah, I I mean, I tend to read these things as supernatural, right? I, mm -hmm. I feel like if if they're placed there, they're placed there on purpose. Yeah. Like I, I think that Martin is very purposeful on these things. And yet he's he does these things vaguely enough that it's open for interpretation. Which I love, right? He doesn't kind of hit the reader over the head with this is what it means. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. that those subtleties of like you said, the wind and the sounds and you know, we're 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 really in, I think, Arya's mindset as she's running back mm -hmm. to the camp. Mm -hmm. We hear what she hears. We see what she sees. She, we experience what she experiences. And that's that's good writing. Yeah. And it's not like he's uninterested in psychology. I mean, you could read all of these things as sort of a psychological device, right, to tell mm -hmm. a story about the, the character's makeup. And how one deals with trauma. Yes. You know, the, the idea of hauntology and communicating with ghosts. Yeah. And connecting to those who have been, especially those who have died violently or been taken from you unexpectedly and again we we forget how young these characters are uh -huh. and you know she is so young and and she's not only so young she and sansa this is another way that connects them they both witness ned die even though arya doesn't directly look mm -hmm. at what's happening mm -hmm. she's right there and sansa does see it happen and so again the parallel between these two sisters even though they're very different in personality yeah and their situations are different they both have the tools and they develop the tools and skills they need. And they're smart. They're both very smart because they watch and they listen yeah, and they observe and they learn. And that's how they make it out. It's interesting with Arya because, you know, it was so, it was so amazing to me that she didn't actually see Ned die. But when she's talking with Yorin in a previous chapter, she keeps seeing it happen. Yeah. And Yorin is like, you, you couldn't have seen it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. yet she I feels sure like she did. did. <laughs> yes. And and yet that's what she sees in her, you know, she's afraid to sleep because that's what she'll see in her dreams. Um, And so it's not, she didn't witness it, you know, with her eyes, but she's seen it how many times in her dreams. Right. So. Mm. Yeah. Uh, she's, she's haunted by it. Nonetheless, I do feel like there's something about, like I w I wouldn't necessarily disagree with someone that said no 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 this is her her encounter with Ned is not sort of a ghost or something like that um it's not any kind of an ability this is just her processing yeah and th that that would you know that's that's Shakespeare that's the hero's journey that's Freud you know there there's a lot of yeah. ways that you can read that in a literary way that would absolutely make sense. Yeah. So I, I think that there's multiple ways to look at it. And the hero's journey is interesting too. If you think about, you know, typically 
the mentor has to die mm -hmm. so the hero can grow. But this keeps occurring to Maria. It's not just one mentor that she loses. She keeps losing them mm -hmm. as she goes through. And but she learns from every single one of them um, to enable her to, you know, do what she's able to do uh, through all of these different journeys that she has. So that's a that's an interesting way to look at it, too. But you're right. I think either way, yeah. I'm content with interpreting that either way. I feel like Arya's story is the hero's spiral. <laughs> yes. At least so far, it's, the, the circle doesn't seem to be flat in Arya's case, so. And how she, you know, her her motivations, I love how she's buried in her motivations as well. She doesn't just have this singular drive for revenge. You know, uh -huh. She doesn't have this singular drive for survival. It's all of those things. And so if you, if you look at the different people she kills, and especially early on, she feels bad that she's killed them. Um, you know, she thinks back to the first boy in the stable and is kind of... I don't know if ashamed is the right word. Um, maybe just feels a little guilty about that. That she doesn't even tell Yorin. You know, she's what? How will Yorin react to the knowledge that I killed somebody mm. as I was trying to escape? Even though I think Yorin would probably understand uh, that it was just pure self-defense. Um, and then you know, the other people that she decides are are worthy of, of death or deserve death mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Um, you know, her enemies list gets longer and longer. So she's just, it, it's a really interesting character. Who makes up that list and why? Why are they on her list? For what reason? And yeah. I think those reasons vary somewhat. But in her mind, they all definitely deserve to die. So that kind of brings us to Lamy's fate, right? Poor so. Lamy. <laughs> he really thought they were going to carry him, didn't they? <laughs> or didn't he? I mean, he just was, you, you got to carry me. Like, it wasn't even a question. So, oh, goodness. So he, he really, I mean, I, look. He's wounded. He's dying. Like I think there. I think that's probably what Gendry says about him is true. It's like that wound has festered. He probably yeah. doesn't have long for it. You know, he tells him like, "Look, if they get, if they have leg potion, we'll bring back some leg potion or whatever." <laughs> right. you know, and Arya, I think, even wants to take him to a maester. Let's find a maester out here in the wilderness, <laughs> so... or maybe Gendry. I forget which one of them suggests. Let's just find a maester. But I thought, no, no it is it is Arya. It's one of the is few. Is it Arya? There's a couple of places in this chapter where she she almost choreographs her class difference. Yeah. She says at one point, she says, look, if you're going to hunt a boar, you need a, a hunting party <laughs> and a boar spear and men, you know, and horses. And, you know, she like, you know, she sort of reels off this sort of royal hunt. Right. <laughs> and then she says that to, you know, to Gendry about the maester. She's like, we got to get him to a maester. And, and Gendry's like, what are you talking about? Maesters are in <laughs> castles. That's right. Yeah, I think you're so right about that. So, but she does, she absolutely does that. And then, of course, I do think that there's something about the the book. In the book, you really get the sense that they've been dragging Lamy and carrying Lamy for yes. several miles, right? Yeah. So that doesn't happen in the show. And so in the book, it almost is a little bit of a instruction to the reader about how much danger Bran is going to be in. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, if, if he's if he is without the ability to walk up in the north, his life is absolutely expendable. Right. And so his protectors are absolutely going to be paramount. And so I think that yeah. there's something about Lamy's story 
that is almost a cautionary tale that sort of raises the stakes for Bran's story up north. It does. And I think it, in the book, because they have carried him around for so long, they have done everything they can to preserve him, even though Arya and Gendry know he's probably going to die. You know, you mentioned the the infected leg. They uh-huh. can smell the infection. He is going to die. And yet they still cart him around rather than just leave, abandon him, leave him in the woods. And none of that matters, again, when the soldiers come mm. and they just dispatch him immediately. And it also makes me, it reminds me of Tyrion. You know, we live in a world where if you have any, what was considered a flaw or a disability, mm-hmm. um, you are expendable. You are no longer valuable to this society. And it's only Tyrion's class position that saves him. He says this again and again and right. again. If I were not a Lannister, they would have left me in the woods. Yeah. Bran, when he falls from the tower, rather when he's pushed from the tower, if he had been in a you know lower class family, they probably would have abandoned him or killed him. <laughs> mm. He he would no longer be useful. Um, but Bran is protected because of class. But yet, when Winterfell falls, and he leaves that environment, and they're trying to you know escape or, or go up north, he is in a much more vulnerable position where he's going to rely uh, on people uh, who are also vulnerable, right? Who don't have protections of class. Um, who are going to be in a position where maybe if they are attacked, okay, it doesn't matter that this kid is Bran Stark. <laughs> We're getting out of here. We're going to save ourselves. It's a very, very different environment that he enters. Yeah, it's. I guess it reminds you that there's almost this brutish mentality of the survivalist mm-hmm. that sort of starts to think about very, very basic needs, right? Right. And so, yeah, so so that, that that's the way this book ends. This book ends with Bran, uh, you know, beginning his journey north, and right. and that's that's where that's the culture where he's he's heading into sort of this situation where it's going to be all survival all the time, and anyone he encounters along the way will be a sort of brutal survivalist. Yeah, and so it, it is a survivalist tale in many ways. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what would you do? You know, what would you do to survive? What links would you go to? What choices would you make? Um, I'm watching Yellow Jackets right now. So (laughs) very much have this on my brain about, you know, being placed in desperate circumstances and what that does. Almost like this instinctual, um, you know, force takes over in some ways Mm. where, you know, the, the body has this will to survive. The mind has this will to survive. And, um, you know, sometimes horrible choices are made. And and how do you hang on to your humanity in that kind of environment? So he, he really is sort of this creature of circumstance. He's done nothing, you know, we were talking about just desserts earlier. He's done nothing to really deserve the situation that he's in. And if, I guess what this is meant to teach us is that, you know, Arya needs to become acquainted with death. And there are there are many, many ways to die. And this is one of the lessons she has to learn along the way. So I, I almost feel like Lamy is one of these characters that is sort of there in the story to teach Arya a lesson. And I think one of her biggest lessons is the senselessness of it all. There, you know, there's this yeah. passage where um 
a lot of the villagers that they encounter keep saying, why are you doing this? We have not raised arms against you. We have not rebelled. We are just living our lives mm -hmm. as we always have, and you are killing us. Why would you do this? And, you know, the tickler again, um, just again, this banality, you know, again, the, the mountain who makes promises to this mother and then kills the daughter anyway. There, there are no rules and there is no purpose, really. Or Armory and, Lord. She's basically, he's, he just looks <laughs> completely bored by the entire thing. Just bored by it. But he's commanding not, everything again, to be they, burned. That's not what they tell you in the stories. There has to be a purpose. And when you kill people, they're your enemy. And, you know, you you must have done something to deserve it. And that's not what's happening <laughs> at all. How do you survive in that world when there are no rules? If I do this, I will survive because I'm not going to rebel. If I yield, they mm -hmm. won't kill me. Um, you know, if I, if I show loyalty to you, um, you know, there's so many examples of the prisoners. Um, oh, praising the Lannisters. You know, that means that they'll see that we're loyal and they'll save us. No, they get killed too. Mm -hmm. What do you do to survive? Um, it, it reminds me of they're all in the holding pen. Who gets picked out to be tortured that day? People who hide in the corner, they get picked. People who, again, you know, say that they're loyal, they get picked. There's nothing you can There's do. There's no rhyme or it's reason. It's just to so yeah. random. War is, and I think yeah, that's maybe the chaos. biggest lesson. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, so I think that there's something about Lamy's story that parallels Arya's story, and um, and so you almost get this sense that this could happen to Arya at any point, of course. Right, at so, any point. Yeah, so I think it sort of raises the stakes for her. Uh, I'm going to say notable departures, but I do have one more thing I want to ask you about. Okay. So notable departures, uh, we, we finally, I guess... I'm going to say yes to Yorin's death. There is, there's a sense in which, you know, his clothes, his hair, they're all convinced that he's dead, right? Yeah. So seemingly Yorin's gone. I, I'm, I always take these things with a tiny grain of salt, right? <laughs> like I'm always wondering, is Serial really yeah, dead? That's right. That's right. I'm always telling my kids the number one rule, if you don't <laughs> see a body. <laughs> You didn't They're see not them dead. die on screen. And sometimes <laughs> even when you do see them. Die sometimes even when you do, right. but especially if you don't uh -huh. see the body. So Lamy, we talked about um, Kurtz dies, cut Jack and Tarber uh, abandoned them. Right. Who knows? They're probably dead too, I'm assuming. And then Weasel leaves the story never to return as far as we know. Right. Um. So let me ask you this question because like I said, this is a fantasy story, so every now and again I my mind wanders. Their client they're crawling back to save Gendry. And and Hot Pie is <laughs> is crawling along, you know, trying to be as quiet as he can, and a crow attacks him. Yeah. Maybe thinking he's a dead body or something. I don't know what the crow's thinking, but I keep thinking, okay, this there there's an animal in the story. It's a crow. We've been given hints already that there's super, you know, they're in a supernatural place and supernatural things are happening. I wonder if there's some there's sort of some kind of wargish intent behind the the uh, the crow here, or whether it's just dumb luck. 
Yeah, I well, you know, again, I thought of that too because Martin is rarely unintentional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the fact that it's a crow and we know how important crows are. Um I don't know. It, it's interesting and who would be who would be kind of warging and and who would whose intent? Would it be it's interesting to think that maybe like a brand situation where maybe like somebody who is on their side wants them to be captured in that moment because if they're not something worse might happen. Yeah, or that's that's the only thing I can think. It's an intervention, you know. I I thought of that too. So there, there's a there parallel other, here. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just there are a few other places where I know that some readers have speculated Bran is going into the past yeah. and is intervening in Arya's story as a form of protection, as well as John's story. Yeah, I was That's just going to say, Bran. I think that the parallel is that when John tries to run to abandon his watch mm-hmm. and go yes. join up with Rob, Ghost ends up, you know, he's hiding, his brothers are looking for him, and Ghost ends up giving his location away. Right. And so that kind of made me think, hmm, what's what's going on here? Yeah. When would we ever see Ghost betray John, right? Right. We know that Bran can control, you know, wolves. He yes. Can, he can inhabit uh, crows. I mean, he, he can do all of that. So yeah, yeah. it would be fascinating to me if that comes back. And again, in the later books where we see that all along, it was, you know, Bran intervening at these crucial times. Or, I mean, I guess another way to look at it is it's like Blood Raven and he's trying to do naughty things. Right. It could be either. It could be either way. I don't know. Um, like all this is kind of speculation, but. <laughs> it's more interesting to kind of think about actually this had to happen here because if they had kept going, they would have been killed. And so there's this larger yeah. picture that, you know, somebody out there can see. Um, who is who's kind of making these choices that seem to be things that are working against the heroes in the moment, but perhaps yeah. are not. Yeah, and I think that there's something... I mean, look, this is the kind of story where you're supposed to ask those kinds of questions, right? Yes, and it's fun to ask those questions. I, I get irritated when people say, oh, you're reading too much into it. Uh-huh. That's the point. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of the fun. <laughs> Speculating and thinking about yeah. what these things mean and talking to other people who love these stories. It's, and... Yes, it's. I, I sort of ride that fence because sometimes I think <laughs> the text, is there, there's something about the text that is sacred it's like there's something about this text that is telling me a story i should go with the text like yeah i should just go where the text wants to take me (laughs) instead of trying to impose things uh onto the text and then uh, then then i also feel like you do like but where's the fun in that you know right well i kind of am more of a middle ground too to tell you the truth i i i certainly don't criticize anybody for you know kind of um imposing their own meanings on the text and Mm -hmm. making of characters what they will. If that serves a purpose for them, that's fine. But, you know, you and I have spent 15 minutes or more on this pod talking about the rules of Martin. (laughs) You know, what are the rules for And that's Mm -hmm. fun to me, too, to kind of trace here are the patterns that are being laid out for us. It's it's about Uh, here are the things that the author is hinting at. Let's let's use our imagination within those parameters, Uh because I'm not a huge fan of going too far off text. Um, but when we get clues, I think we can run with it, right? When when Martin presents us with the crow, 
I think it's perfectly valid to say, what does the crow mean? <laughs> he gave us a crow. Uh, we think he could have chosen anything. He, he could, could have, have chosen anything. It could, it have, could been have been a, rat, a field mouse. He gave us you know? a crow. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Just like the red comet, it means something, right? Yes. Yeah. And yes. I, yeah. So I'll just put it out as a question and, you know, it doesn't necessarily need a, an answer, but I was asking myself, hmm, is there something behind, is there a human intention behind the actions of the crow? I, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that question, but it is Martin. It is a supernatural, we, you know, book and we do have supernatural clues just in this chapter alone and it is a crow and it is a crow so yes <laughs> i am right there with you okay. um i had the same question and now throwback thursday with comic steve osborne the the action sequence that happens you know on the the road to the wall essentially is um it does feel inevitable there's nothing about it that seems terribly surprising it's it's dramatic. Well, um, we have the uh, uh, medieval builder character killing Lamy. So Lamy's dead. Yeah. Poor Lamy. <laughs> Poor Lamy. It was right through the throat. I mean, he was just yeah. getting his sort of adult vocal cords. Yeah. That squeaky yeah, little that was, junior that was high voice one. just got clipped. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty. And it was done with, with the needle, too. It was even... Yeah. So that character is medieval Bilber. That, that character's yeah. name is Polliver. Okay. And uh, in the book, it's a guy named Raph. And uh, I don't know. It would be so much more interesting if it was Bilber as Bilber. It, it was actually Bilber. Like he puts the knife through the throat. Like, Brutal! Oh, what a mess! That's blood everywhere. It's gross. <laughs> <laughs> 